Hello, this is the Hermit at Loch Ear, or non-Scottish translation would say Lake Erie in Washington State. This is Mike Jones, and my webpage is jmichaeljoneswriter.com. Well, it's been a gorgeous day here in the Pacific Northwest on Lake Erie. Uh, after two weeks of weather that was very much like our Minnesota days with 10 inches of snow on the ground and cold, uh, today was like a spring day with uh, blue skies and the, the ducks, our common mergansers, are back on the lake. Just a beautiful day. But I'm not here to talk about the weather or my location. This is podcast, uh, uh, The Adultery, Adultery, uh, not Adultery, Adultery, a pro-life, The Historical Perspective. This is my fifth installment, and there'll probably be one more, uh, on this whole topic of abortion. And like I said before, I love wading into very controversial topics and seeing how many people I can piss off around the world. I've been very good at that in the last 20 years or 30 years, especially since I left evangelicalism in 1990. Um, I have been blogging for almost 20 years, and most of the topics were to this post-evangelical crowd, and I felt like there was a needed voice there. Um, but then the last three years, as I mentioned before, but this I realize this podcast may be new to you. I mentioned before that I was diagnosed with cancer in 2019. And then there's this huge influx of very nice people who came to my webpage to read about my battle with cancer. And it became a little bit confusing because in between uh, writing blog entries about dealing with cancer, I was writing these more controversial, uh, I call them ramblings, about philosophical issues, especially issues that pertain to my old world of uh, evangelicalism, but not all, not all of them. Uh, a lot of times I'm really interested in the pursuit of truth, uh, as absolute truth, but not a religious or mystical truth, but act, the, the Greek definition of truth as that, which is consistent with reality. Um, <clears throat> so this is gonna be my first installment of a standalone podcast. And my reason, as I've also mentioned before, is trying to separate my ramblings from my blog page and eventually I will devote my writing on my blog page to, to the art of writing because I am an aspiring fiction writer, uh, but also updates on my cancer, which fortunately are becoming fewer at this point until I have a remission and then I'll probably uh, be at wit's end about that. Um, as I said, this is my fifth installment on the top topic of abortion. Um, and. I have to be careful today. Today's a chemotherapy day and I have to take steroids with that and, and it makes me rambly uh, and I'm trying not to do that as I have a limited time. Uh, but my last installment that I hope to do in the next couple of weeks and finish this once and for all is to look at abortion in a compassionate and respectful way towards the mother and trying to find a way that we can all but eliminate abortion. I think it's possible without criminalizing it. Uh, without, you know, the woman who goes through an abortion most of the time is already under great distress. And then at least the conservative Christian groups want to, um, uh, like a scarlet letter, uh, persecute and criminalize them uh, going forward, which is a travesty in my opinion. And indeed, uh, it's one of the Texas passed their anti-abortion law, I think in a cowardly way. And my evangelical friends rejoiced with that. I decided I had to speak up that there was something really wrong in this picture. And that's why I'm doing this now. So last time I looked at what the Bible says about abortion, all my evangelical friends uh, 
love to tell me how they are so biblical and everyone who's not an evangelical is not biblical. Uh, but I really did a careful study and I invited people to come to my webpage and send me a message um, if they have something that I overlooked about what the Bible says about abortion. And I'm just rehashing my last podcast, but simply the Bible says nothing, nothing about abortion. There's one verse in Exodus that suggests that if you accidentally cause a woman to miscarriage, you have to pay the husband uh, and the wife, hopefully, uh, is a patriarchal society, so I'm not sure. But you have to pay them money. But if the woman who's pregnant is injured, it's a to- totally different ballgame. You have to pay eye for eye, tooth for tooth, death for death. Uh, they don't say, okay, you caused her to miscarriage, therefore you need to be stoned to death. That's what evangelicals would like to tell you the Bible says. It says you have to pay the husband. So there's value in the fetus. And that's where pro-choice has gone wrong on the far edges where they see abortion only as a form of birth control. It's more than that. The fetus has the value of a human process. I've already discussed it. Uh, but then before I move on to this today's topic, which is about the history of the pro-life movement, or the better term is anti-abortion, um, it, I want to look at the Bible one more time and just talk about some of the things it does say. And, and it's important because it impacts what I'm going, or it's relative to what I'm going to say today. Um, now, keeping your bi- back of your mind again, the Bible says nothing about abortion. Uh, but these places I'm going to mention now, the Bible is totally unambiguous about, clear as a bell, and, and speaks in a very orthotic or <laughs> a, a very confident voice uh, in these points. So there's 228 verses alone that deal with this concept of truth and a sense of absolute truth, as I mentioned, the Greek interpretation, that which is consistent with reality. There's 50 more verses that deal directly with lying or making a false witness. There's 33 times the Bible directly addresses the sin of adultery. That's having sex with someone while you're married to someone else. And all these things I'm talking about are going to be relevant when I talk about the uh, adultery. Um, I shouldn't have the word adultery and adultery in the same uh, talk because I'm going to keep getting a switch. Anyway, uh, fornication appears in the Bible 67 times and doing a little study on that. Now, this is not confident, but there are some who believe, uh, I mean, the original word, it's from the same word that porn comes from and it has to do, I think, in the Greek time, uh, prostitutes worked under these bridges that had a, a arch above them, and they called it the porn plate, or Pornex, I think is the name of the bridge. And so women who worked under that, and I guess some men too, uh, were called uh, prostitutes, and porn was some of the things they distributed. And pornification, or fornification, that was changed to an F, uh, has to do with having sex with prostitutes. Now, you can argue that point, and I'm not going to get into that here. Um, So how did pro-life get to the point of being idolatry? So looking at the historical count, first I'm going to have to make this case about that. And I wish I could have one of those neuralizers I mentioned last time that the men in black had, where they this little silver looked like an ink pen, they flip a button and it erases everyone's memory except for them. I wish I could erase your memory 
at least your cultural memory, because there's so much we assume the Bible says, or we assume is right and wrong, of which our culture tells us, of which there is no basis. And that's what happened to me in 1990. I was living in Islamic uh, culture in Cairo, Egypt, and had a profound disillusionment with evangelicalism. But one of the things that was easy for me is to see the cleavage points of my own culture and be able to shake that off and try to approach things clean. And that's what I'm trying to do here uh, uh, this afternoon. Um, so now with all that said, uh, it's a preparation of what I'm about to say, the best il illustration I can use, and there's, there's many, but I'm going to pick one that was most clear to me. And that was in 2016 when about 90% of all evangelicals and conservative Catholics, those who hold a pro-life view, endorsed and devoted themselves to the election of Donald Trump. So before you turn away and say, oh no, this is going to be a political talk, I just want to make it clear, this has nothing to do with politics. Nothing to do with politics, of what I'm about to say. Uh, so the Christians, the conservative Christians, um, coming back to them, they have probably a handful of absolute pillars of faith. Now, these are probably not written down anywhere, I'm not sure, but it's not like a particular church, a Methodist church, Presbyterian church, whatever, has written in their, do their dogma or the tenets certain rules. It's not that. This is a cultural pillars, or uh, I guess you say cultural dogma. Uh, number one for the evangelicals, and this is from my experience and also from reading, is probably inerrancy of scripture. And I'll put that in quotes because that's not really what they mean. It means their precise interpretation, how loose that may be, it may be like abortion, not even mention the Bible, but they will make it a mandate that it's capital punishment deserving. Um, these are these things that are non-written. But so the first one is inerrancy of scripture. Probably number two is pro-life. And number three is uh, same-sex marriage. And you come down the list. And coming down the list now, unfortunately, all you have to do is look at the Republican Party uh, uh, platform, and you can tell exactly what is the now the dogmas of evangelicalism as they've uh, been completely absorbed into the Republican uh, uh, political movement. Now, I'm going to sidetrack here, just tell you a little bit to, to illustrate this point that I am not talking in political terms. And, to, and a lot of times I get myself in trouble. I'm an extremely curious person and I love to learn. And I change my mind when I learn things. Like right now, if you send me 20 verses that say abortion is the same as murder, it's very clear, you might change my opinion. Uh, so a lot of times I say things and I don't mean to be critical. It's received, especially by my, my old evangelical friends. And I have a, you know, I came out of that culture for 30 years. I was in it, grew up in the Bible Belt. And a lot of my friends are evangelicals. And when I ask questions, they see it as criticism. But I have known of Donald Trump since I was in high school. And I've never had a favorable opinion of him based on his character. And he has a, a well-known reputation for his character of being a liar and being a fornicator and adulterer. And I didn't like those things. I don't like those things. And also greed, money hungry. I didn't look up verses on greed, but I'm sure there's plenty uh, of those. 
So when I first, one of my dear evangelical friends, who's also a political conservative, it never bothered me up until that point because I was a Republican most of my life. When he said he was devoted to electing Donald Trump by voting for him in the primary and in the presidential election, I just had the question, his name's Brad. Brad, how, how can you be for this guy? I don't get it. He was offended that I brought that up. And then he said the most interesting thing to me is I did not treat your people that way. And I said, wait a minute, who are my people? You know, the Clintons, Obama, uh, Nancy Pelosi. I went, wait a minute, how are those of my people? I'm not a Democrat. I didn't elect those people. <laughs> I don't support them. I'm not devoted to them. I, I mean, as a matter of fact, I think Bill Clinton runs a close second to Donald Trump as a faulty character, Hillary Clinton, maybe a third or fourth. So you know, I'm not a big fan of someone because they're a Democrat. And I was not a fan of Donald Trump when he was a Democrat. And he was a Democrat most of his life. So this has nothing to do with politics. It is about character. And I'm hoping to illustrate this a little bit now as I go forward. Um, now, I'm going to describe Donald Trump a little bit, very loosely. I'm not going to waste a lot of time with this, but I want you to understand, I don't sit down and watch MSNBC all day and write down notes from them. I, I never watch them. They're so biased against Donald Trump. I don't watch them. I rarely watch CNN, more of a like getting French fries at a drive-through, uh, just grab the headlines. But I, there's several commentators on CNN I just can't watch because they're so biased. Now, I used to go to Fox News and watch uh, Fox News Sunday because uh, I'll think of his name in a second. That's one of the things chemotherapy does to you, it erases your memory. That's what I need rather than a neuralizer. I need to give everyone chemotherapy and then they'll forget their names. Um, but anyway, uh, he just resigned. But on Sunday, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, he was decent. He was an honest guy. He was a real reporter. But I, I don't go to Fox News. It's, it's not, uh, there's no real news on Fox News. It's all propaganda for Republican Party. Uh, so it's a waste of time. But anyway, uh, so what I know about Donald Trump has to do with just my experience in life of hearing about him. Uh, he's always been known by most people as an arrogant, money-hungry, womanizing, adulterer, a fornicator, uh, uh, liar. And this is just not me saying it because he's Republican. It makes no difference. It's because of his character. And I always evaluate uh, politicians by their character. So to me, um, it was mind boggling when not only did my friend Brad, I mentioned until this day, as far as I know, is totally devoted uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, and I have a very large, as I mentioned, uh, evangelical friend, or I did, and now I'm a hermit because my uh, I had a stem cell transplant that has me confined now to my house on, on Loch Ear um, now for the last three years and my friend populate friendship population has plummeted uh, to, to uh, some ducks uh, St. Bernard and my wife and uh, my friend Jerry uh, we get together quite often but it's been reduced but anyway by internet and other emails and, and sometimes personal conversations I've talked to uh, a large number of my old evangelical friends and almost 100%, I'm trying to think here, maybe one, you know, one that gets into semantics of who's really an evangelical. I can think of one uh, 
one person who is not a Trump supporter, but all the rest, almost like they're reading from a script, say, yeah, I voted for Trump, I support Trump, because he is so biblical. Whew. So that puzzled me. And again, I'm not, I'd come across as being critical, but it is my curiosity makes no sense. Makes no sense. I'm trying to think of an example on the liberal side, say, oh, no, <laughs> younger people won't remember who this is, but Charles Manson, oh, he's a really good guy. You know, he's a Democrat. And I, you know, for that reason, I think he's a really good guy. I mean, makes no sense. It doesn't matter what party you're part of, your character stands alone. Um, and going forward, I will always be an independent because I watched how all my Republican friends jumped on the truck train and went right off the cliff uh, into this abyss of lies. And they didn't hes even hesitate. So I will never be a card-carrying member of a political party because of that reason. Now, just for a moment, for, for exercise. Now, when I was an evangelical, uh, I'm going to tell you our, our mores, which is rules of our culture. Uh, there's many things that we felt like we were set aside from all of society because we are the ones who believe the Bible and took it seriously. No one else did. And it is a really arrogant position, but we were also the ones that, that, that we love God and God loved us. And God didn't love a lot of the other people. Or, you know, we might say God loved them, but he didn't like them. Uh, but in our mores back, and I'm talking about in the 1980s, our number one thing was loving people. We, we meant it. There's sincerity there. We wanted to love people. We'd stop and somebody had a flat tire and help them and buy them groceries and do things like that. Honesty was very, very serious, take, seriously taken, except for what I say, emotional honesty. And, I, and one of the reasons I left evangelicalism is because I realized I was a liar, a chronic liar on the emotional front. Um, I won't get into that here. Um, and sexual purity. Now, I was in a parachurch organization called the Navigators. Now, they would not have written any of their rules, but in our, I went through college with them and a graduate school for five years with them. So a total of, well, then I went to the mission field with them. So I spent more than 16 years with the Navigators. And in our church group, or in our, not church, in our college group, uh, you, you can't imagine the level of purity that we, was our mores, their unwritten rules of our group. You could not interact with a girl very much. You certainly could not touch her. I mean, even bumping into her at a meeting is frowned upon. You would never hold hands with a girl. You would never kiss a girl. You would never date a girl. You're not supposed to ever lust for a girl, even though in our private lives, we probably did all the time. Uh, and then God would miraculously create marriage and you would go into marriage uh, sexually pure and I must be one of the few that ended up on their honeymoon as a virgin. But that was because of this, this uh, peer pressure that we had, intense um, peer pressure sexually, and then telling the truth, not, you know, if we, if we missed a church meeting to work extra hours to make $40 or $30, that was considered greed, and that was frowned upon. Um, that was considered uh, loving money. Um, now imagine with me for a moment, uh, if you're, if you're an evangelical and you're still with me <laughs> in this podcast, uh, imagine in your church, there's a guy named Earl, E-A-R-L, 
uh, and he would often, especially just when he's around men, boast about having sex with hundreds of women, not and maybe even thousands. I have to go back and look at some of the transcripts uh, of what Donald Trump has said. But I know he's he said he's had sex with hundreds of women. Um, he's he boasts about having multiple affairs, uh, including a Playboy centerfold, a porn star, while married. Um, he has three divorces. Um, and, you know, if you look at his Access Hollywood tape and look at the transcript, he's very clear, he's confident. Uh, and I use his words, trying to fuck a married woman is his, his operation, uh, uh, his uh, modus operandi, uh, MO. Uh, anyway, uh, and besides that, he was, imagine this guy Earl. Now we're coming back to Earl in your evangelical church. He went around boasting about having sex with lots of women, boasting about having sex with Playboy centerfold, porn stars. While married, he's had three divorces. He's known throughout your small town as a liar and a con artist in the business world. You can't trust him. Uh, he's a swindler. He will swindle you out of your money if you can. Uh, he's lied to you multiple times. He uses racist language around you like those, those Mexicans. They're all rapists and drug dealers. They're pathetic. They're nasty. They, they spray COVID. Um, and then all Muslims are terrorists. Uh, and so this, you, you hear this racist language. And, and then now imagine that 12 women have filed lawsuits against your friend Earl for rape or sexual assault. Um, so, and this friend Earl, thinking about him in your church, would you, exactly as I described, would you elevate him to an elder? Would you make him a deacon? Would you make him your pastor? Uh, would you even consider him a Christian? In my old evangelical days, there's no way we would consider this person a Christian, especially if they didn't know how to hold a Bible, even upside down or upright, um, that they lust for power. All politicians lust for power. All politicians lie. Don't get me wrong. But I'm talking about on a grander scale than we've ever seen before. Would you befriend them? However, flip it on its head, rename that person Donald Trump, and now the whole evangelical world has put him not only as their political leader, but as their spiritual leader, the man they look up to, the man they would sell everything out for. And the question becomes, why? Why? What happened? I'm talking in the area of reason. It makes no freaking sense why this has happened. And when I started working on this probably two months ago, I was thinking that the answer here and that's where I come to the word idolatry, is that it was that because Trump was pro-life, and a lot of my evangelical friends said, you know, he's God, he's God's choice. Um, he's going to put in good judges. So what? It's a that's a a uh, a token way of saying uh, uh, pro. They want to criminalize abortion, and that's now number one. Throw the character out. Throw out those hundreds. Uh, I think I, I told all the number of verses, but even uh, uh, 2,000, I didn't mention this, but 2,000 verses are devoted to helping the poor and helping the down and out. Throw all that part of the Bible out. Get a knife, cut those pages out of your Bible because now you follow Donald Trump. And the part that tells you to follow Donald Trump is not even in the Bible. So now you see the picture of why this is adultery. It's, it's putting something above God that's not even in the Bible. Um, now, 
I, I did some more study in the last few weeks, and I'm going to switch uh, a little bit in my tone here before I end this. And I said I'm going to talk about the historical development of the pro-life uh, in evangelicalism. I'm going to have just a nugget of time to talk about that. But I've, I've realized that it's not pro-life that's number one. It's power. And I'm going to describe it this way. The common evangelical has a false historical narrative. I've spent years studying history of America, Western history, his, philosophical history of Europe, and the history of the church. And I can tell you with confidence, as any historian could tell you, this narrative is not true. But they have a narrative that one day, a long time ago, usually in the 1700s, 1800s, America was an evangelical Christian country. Now, don't tell Thomas Jefferson that, because uh, he wasn't a Christian. Don't tell Benjamin Franklin that if you read some of the things he thought and read, you would say he's certainly not evangelical. But it was a time when <laughs> white men had slaves, women couldn't vote. Um, There's a lot of horrible things going on in our society, but that's the perfect America that this, the evangelicals now want to get back to. And it's a term called reconstruction. They believe that they should take over the government. And it doesn't matter, no means, even with guns, they should take over the American government and put in evangelical laws onto everyone, not what the Bible says, but evangelical rules onto the whole society. Uh, it's a power consumption. That's where the idolatry comes in, uh, is the uh, desire to power. So, and again, I'm glad that I stumbled on a couple of things. Uh, I don't have to go into this history in detail because there is an excellent book that I finished a couple weeks ago uh, that goes through this history of the evangelicals coming into power and seeking power. And it's Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. It's by Kirsten Cobes Dumez, and she's a professor of history at, uh, uh, oh, at the Reform. I know, I know the school, Reform, uh, uh, school in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'll think of it in a second. Um, anyway, she this is a conservative school, very conservative. I know many people that graduate from there, and I've known other professors there. Uh, Calvin uh, University um, in Grand Rapids <laughs> should should have known as Calvin. <laughs> I'm I'm still a Presbyterian. Uh, think of John Calvin, but anyway, it's Calvin University, so it's a very conservative school. She does an excellent job in laying out this history of how evangelicals got where they are today. And I haven't, I haven't gone back and rechecked every fact she puts out, but it's fact after fact after fact. Most of these facts I already knew through my own study. So there's a few things I'm thinking, really? Uh, did this really happen that way? And I like to go back and study it because I always do that. But I want to mention a second book, um, and it's, uh, it's an older book. It's by, uh, I'd say, Friend. Uh, if you asked him if he's my friend, he'd say, who is he? Uh, we have had conversations, and I knew his mother personally was uh, uh, Frank Schaefer's book, Crazy for God, How I Grew Up as One of the Elect, Helped Found the Religious, religious Right, and Lived to Take It All or Almost All Back by Frank Schaefer. Now, I'm going to put this in context because I am running out of time. Francis Schaefer, his father, is probably, if I still have any kind of hero, he's one of my heroes, although I don't agree with everything Francis Schaefer said. But Francis and Frank are the very ones who brought the abortion issue to American Christians. 
Um, and if you, I think I put in one of my other uh, uh, areas that that the Baptists in the '60s uh, actually voted uh, that they should that it was a good thing for women to have abortions for their emotional health. So something happened in the '70s, and Francis and Frank Schaefer, son, father and son, came to the states. Uh, you have to read more about them. I don't have time to talk about them here, but they had a film series with C. Everett Koop, the uh, Attorney General, who put the issue of abortion and euthanasia at full center attention as issues that the Christians were asleep at the wheel about. And I, I think Francis Schaeffer, I would still agree with him, although he would roll in his grave uh, to see what's happening now with Christians being taken over by the Republican Party. And Frank Schaefer does, uh, he's not in his grave, but he certainly speaks out strongly. But Frank Schaefer, I identify with him some ways that he, uh, he, he can come across a very angry and he came across, he came to the States preaching from coast to coast against abortion. But he said in his book, you got to read his book, that they were in Washington DC and showed this film series to a bunch of Republican senators. And one of them told them that uh, that was the key point they were looking for, uh, an issue that they could use to recruit all the evangelicals into the Republican Party. So I'm going to close this podcast here. I am running out of time. Uh, I hope everything I said made sense. And I'm going to do one more about what we can do to eliminate abortion without using the, the judicial system to do that. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful week.